Today's message is simple. Today's message is nothing that you haven't heard before, but I hope it will be a good reminder. We've been the past several weeks talking about evangelism, following up and reinforcing the Gospel Reset series that we had in our Sunday school time. And we began this series by talking about how we need to pray. Because if we fail to pray when it comes to evangelism, we, we just fail. And so we noted in the book of Acts, particularly at the end of chapter 4, how the disciples, after Peter and John had been arrested, uh, they got back together with the people and they prayed to God for courage and for boldness. And the place where they were praying was shaken. And it says they all began to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. And when we pray for boldness and courage in order to evangelize, in order to proclaim the Word of God, I think God will answer that prayer every time in a positive way. If we pray nothing doubting, if we pray faithfully and in faith. So we need to pray. And throughout the book of Acts, there is a great emphasis on prayer. In fact, folks, there are more references to prayer in the book of Acts than any other book in the Bible. Even more than the Psalms, which is a devotional book, Acts has more references to prayer. So we need to pray. That's where we started. Then we began talking about the process of evangelism and how that process usually works itself through three stages. The first is the cultivation stage. This is where you're cultivating or building a relationship with someone who's not connected to God, who hasn't accepted Christ as their Savior and Lord. So the cultivation stage, building that relationship, and that can take time. Some people, you can build a relationship real quickly because you have a lot of things in common. Other times, it, it takes a while to, to build that trust uh, and rapport with someone. The second stage was the sowing stage. That's where we actually plant the gospel. We sow the seeds of the gospel in a person's life. And how do we do that? Well, we tell them what God has done for them. The gospel, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said was Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's what we plant in someone. That's what we share. And that simple message about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, that's the gospel which Paul says in Romans 1.17 is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe. Anything more powerful than God's power? No. Anything more powerful than the fact that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and he was risen from the dead? No. So we have to tell them what God has done for them through Jesus. Just what Andy shared with us in our communion meditation. So we plant the gospel. Then we wait for the harvest, which is the third stage. Now, last week, we talked about what we could do while we're waiting for the harvest. And we talked about watering the seed of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, and God was the one that gave the increase. 
So how do you water the seed? Well, the way we talked about last week, I think one good way is to share your story. Share with your friend, you've built that relationship, share with them the struggle that you went through in turning your life over to Jesus. Everybody struggles at some point in that probably, that the fact that you're turning your will over to God's will, that you are no longer going to be the Lord of your life and call the shots yourself. You're going to turn the Lordship of your life over to the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so a lot, most people really struggle with that. And some people just won't do it. They're going to live their life their way. And at the end of the life, their theme song will be Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. And they will have really messed it up. You can't do it your way and be saved. You have to do it God's way. So share with them, water that seed you've planted by sharing your story with them. And continue to be patient as you wait for the harvest. Because the harvest, the result, is not up to you. That comes from God who gives the increase. His Holy Spirit, according to the writing of the Gospel of John, the words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You can't convict someone of their sin. You can plant the seed of the gospel that the Holy Spirit can work through in order to bring that conviction, but that's up to God. The results are up to God, okay? But we have to do our part. So you're patient while you're waiting for the harvest, but as the parable of the sowers taught us, you're always going to find some soil that'll be good soil that will produce where a harvest will be reaped. And so at some point, those people who will accept the message are going to come to a point where they're going to ask you a question. And that question may be shaped differently. But here, here's some ways that that question may come to you. After you've talked with them, they've heard the gospel, they have come to where they believe it, and now they're ready to obey it, they may ask, what do I do? How do I do this? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to go to heaven? How do I become a Christian? How do I accept Christ? What do I have to do? However that question takes shape, you've got to be ready to answer that. And this is where you take them through a simple presentation of God's way of saving man. The gospel plan of salvation. That's the paper that you have in your hand. Now, in the Bible, that question was asked. About the first time we see it asked, was by a man that came to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the account, Luke's account in Luke 18, 18. He said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And by the way, Jesus gave him an answer, but don't follow Jesus' answer in that instance because it won't take you to heaven. Isn't that strange? I would say that. Why do I say that? Because Jesus lived his entire life under the law of Moses. We're not under the law of Moses anymore. He told that young man, 
follow the commandments. And he said, hey, I followed all the commandments since I was a kid. I wonder if that was a lie, you know. But nevertheless, we don't live under the law. And so Jesus gave him an answer that was fitting for the dispensation, the law of Moses' time that they lived under. But the first time it was asked, really, that we know of in the gospel dispensation that we live under, the Christian dispensation, is in Acts 2, verse 37, on the day of Pentecost. Peter has preached that message, giving a meaning to all of the miraculous signs that were taking place that had brought, drawn the people together and had got their attention. He preaches and convinces them that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, Messiah, the one they had waited hundreds of years for. This is a Jewish audience, and he tells them, you murdered the very Messiah that you, that you longed for. And it says the people were convinced in their heart, pierced in their heart. And they said, brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do what? To get rid of that sin. And Peter responded and said, repent. And let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's how they phrased the question, brethren, what shall we do? It was also asked over in the 16th chapter of Acts by the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas had been thrown into prison. They are in restraints. But about midnight, they're singing and praising the Lord. And an earthquake hits. And they are loosed from their restraints. The Philippian jailer, who is a servant of Rome, knows that if his prisoners escape, he's going to be executed. He believes that they've probably escaped. He draws his sword out to fall on it to kill himself. And Paul hollers out, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And it says in Acts 16, he came in and fell before them trembling and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Boy, that's the question, right? And that in some form is a question that ultimately that person you've built a relationship with is going to ask. Again, it'll take different shapes. They'll use different words maybe. But in essence, that's the question. What must I do to be saved? And you've got to be ready to give them an answer. To lead them through God's way of saving man. And so here on the paper... It's the process that a person goes through. Now you take that person that has asked the question and you start with where they're at. At the time that they ask you that question, you may not say, well, you need to hear the gospel, which is number one on your paper. Why might you not say that? They've already heard it. And they've come to the point where they're asking the question, what, the, what do they have to do? But nevertheless, this is a process that person will have worked through, and they may have already worked through a couple of these things before they ask you the question. But hearing is absolutely essential because the Romans 10, 17 passage, right? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. So they have to hear it. If you read that passage in the context of the three or four preceding verses, it says in Romans 10 verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they've not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Not a preacher, a located ministry type of preacher as you think of me. The located church really didn't exist yet, okay? Not, not, in, this, not in the way we think of it today. How shall they hear without a proclaimer? How shall they hear without someone to tell them? That's the point. And how shall they preach or tell or proclaim unless they're sent? And it's in that context that Paul says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Those other passages, I don't know if I've listed all of them there, but Acts 2 verse 37, right? You know, when they said, brethren, what shall we do? It says, when they had heard Peter that verse talks about hearing. Chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 10, 22, and verse 33 about Cornelius all refer to hearing the message. So that's the first step in the process, although you may not use that step when the question is asked of you. You might not even use the second one, to believe. Because if they're asking how to obey the gospel, evidently they have already come to believe. Now you may reemphasize this with them, Okay, but Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, that's part of the gospel Paul shared, 1 Corinthians 15, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So belief it's absolutely essential. When that Philippian jailer in Acts 16, verse 31 came in and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What was the answer? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Belief. What's interesting is that on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached and the people said, What shall we do? Peter didn't tell them to believe in the Messiah. He started with repentance the next step. Why didn't he tell them to believe in the Messiah? They already did, absolutely. But later on, when Paul is preaching to a group that are not Jewish, that hadn't grown up in a rich heritage of the Scriptures, that hadn't been raised with a belief in the Messiah, you better believe they were told to believe in Jesus, okay? The 1 Corinthians 15 passage again those facts about the gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John said, Many other signs Jesus therefore did in the presence of his disciples, which are not included in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 20, verses 30 and 31 is the reason why John wrote his gospel, so people might come to believe in Jesus as the Son of the living God, who died to save them from their sins and is risen from the dead. Belief. Now, let me tell you, there are some people who stop right there. And they say, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you're saved. But I think there's more teaching that goes with it. The third step, repentance. And this is where you may need to start with your friend if you don't start with step two. But repentance, what is repentance? Well, I think I put it on your paper there that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Okay? 
And it's brought about by godly sorrow. And that's the verse that is there. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I hope that in the process of your being saved that you were sorry for your sins. Sorry that your sins put Christ, an innocent man, on the cross. A godly sorrow that led you to change the direction of your life and to come back to God. Worldly sorrow, worldly regret just brings death. You know, there's a couple of words, and I've taught you this in the past. Again, nothing new. A couple different words used for repentance in the New Testament. One is metamelami, a Greek word. The other one is metanoeo. Metamelami is a word that means you're sorry. You're filled with regret. But not that it's going to cause you to change the direction of your life. No cookies before supper and you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar. You're sorry you got caught, but not so sorry that you're not going to try it again if you think you can get away with it. Right? That's metamelami. Metamnaeo, that Greek word, is the one, it's a sorrow that causes you to change your direction. I think a long time ago I shared this illustration with you. When we uh, consolidated Sumner and Bridgeport and we became Red Hill, well, Mr. Robert Clymer became our band director. And uh, when we would, uh, he was a stickler for detail, all right? And when we were on the football field marching, and doing all the formations that we used to do, <laughs> I learned about the meaning of this word once real quick. Okay, because uh, when we were marching in line across the, the goal line and we all take off, he was always barking out, eight to five, eight to five, eight to five, because there were eight marching steps to every five yards. Okay, and he wanted your knees up and your toe pointed down. None of this walking that you see today. You marched eight to five. And when we got to a certain yard line, that was where we would stop and we would pivot and we would come back the other direction. And let me tell you, you did not want to be the one that forgot to turn while 60 to 70 other people are going the other way and you're out here by yourself. And it happened to me once. Let me tell you that I met a not real quickly. All right. I had a sorrow that led to a change of direction very quickly. All right, that's what repentance is all about. And that's what Peter told them to do on the day of Pentecost. Repent. Change your mind about who Jesus is and come to him. You thought that he was someone cursed of God because he died on a tree? He's the Messiah. God's made him both Lord and Christ. And they had to change their mind and to lead them to change their direction, and that's what took place. Romans 2 verse 4 talks about it. Acts 3.19 talks about repentance, but repentance is absolutely essential. It's the turnaround point where a person comes back and turns to God. Confession, number four. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's with your heart you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now those of you that have been Christian for a long time have seen a lot of confessions take place. We're not talking here about confession in the sense that a person is coming up and admitting and confessing all the sins they've committed. 
No, they've confessed their sin when they've repented. This confession is a statement of who they believe Jesus is. And that's why when people have come forward, and you've seen this, we ask them, will you tell these people who you believe Jesus is? And more often than not, they say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is the answer that Peter gave to Jesus in the 16th chapter of Matthew when Jesus asked his disciples, saying, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, is? And Peter gave that response, and that was the proper response. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, He that confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father who's in heaven. But he that denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father. Listen, you want to be confessed. You don't want to be denied. And so it's important for a statement of your faith of who you believe Jesus is. That's all wrapped up in confession. Now, when a person has heard the gospel and they've believed it and they've repented of their sin and willing to make that statement about their faith in Jesus, they're ready to be baptized. All right? Baptism. And here, again, another Greek lesson. I know you love it when I teach you Greek. The Greek word for baptism is baptizo. The root word is bopt. We just spell it B-A-P-T. What is unfortunate is that the word was not translated in your Bibles. It was transliterated. To transliterate a word means to take the Greek letters and put the English equivalents to it. So the beta, alpha, pi, tau of that Greek root word, the bopt, was in our language, B-A-P-T, okay? So they just transliterated it. They didn't tell you what the word meant by translating it. What does the Greek word baptizo, or the root word of it, bopped, mean? Yeah, it means to immerse, to overwhelm, to submerge, to put under. But this word is one of the words in your Bible that didn't get translated. They transliterated it. And so people think, well, baptism is whatever we want it to be. If we sprinkle water on someone, we've baptized them. No, you haven't. There's a different Greek word for that. Rontizo. Okay, if we pour water on them, we've baptized them. No, you haven't. That's a different Greek word. That's cheo. A person is to be immersed, okay? Put under. And by the way, you can't... <laughs> Well, forget that. I'm not going to say that. Just understand the word baptism means to immerse, to put under, to, to submerge. John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River. Why? There was much water there. When the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized by Philip in the 8th chapter of Acts, it says they both went down into the water and both came up out of the water. It's clear in Scripture that the people were immersed. That's the mode, the method of how you baptize someone. But what happens when that takes place? Well, again, Acts 2.38, Peter told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For what reason? For the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, you're going to run across people who are going to tell you that the word for in the phrase for the forgiveness of your sins does not mean in order to, it means because of. In essence, they're telling you that a person is saved before they're baptized, and so they're being baptized because they've already been saved. They may use an illustration like, uh, if you have a headache, take two aspirin for your headache. The word for is not, you're not taking two aspirin in order to get a headache. You're taking two aspirin because you already have it. Okay? And so they say that's what the way the word for should be used in this. You're not being baptized in order to get the forgiveness of your sins. You're being baptized because you've already been forgiven. You'll run across people that believe that and have been taught that, okay? The headache illustration doesn't hold much water with me because for every illustration they can give me, I can give them one that shows the use of the word for, meaning in order to. I rabbit hunt with Steve back here, okay? If I say, go and purchase shotgun shells for the elimination of rabbits, you're buying the shells not because you've already eliminated the rabbits. You're buying them in order to, right? So for every illustration they can give one way, I can give an illustration the other way. That doesn't hold much weight with me. The best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. How is this phrase used elsewhere for the forgiveness of sins? Go back to Matthew, the 26th chapter, and just for reference later on, but I can tell you what it says. It's a phrase you'll hear men use up here when they're given communion meditations. Jesus says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood shed for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. It's the exact Greek phrase that you find in Acts 2.38. Did Jesus shed his blood because sins had already been forgiven or in order to procure the forgiveness of sins? That's how the New Testament uses that phrase, folks. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. In fact, the very next verse that is listed on your paper, Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Don't turn Jesus' words around because there are a lot of people who in essence do, even though they say they don't, because there are a lot of people who believe whoever believes and is saved will be baptized. That's not what it says. Whoever believes and is baptized will be, future tense, okay, saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. 1 Peter 3.21, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, like you're taking a bath to get the dirt off of you, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how is it Paul puts it in the sixth chapter of Romans, the first 11 verses? He talks about baptism, being united with him in the likeness of his death, and being raised to walk in newness of life. He says, if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we'll be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. It saves us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, does baptism alone save you? No. No, if it did, we'd drag everybody we could into water and, and dunk them. 
But baptism means nothing if a person does not believe and has not repented and is not willing to confess their faith in Jesus. But it's at the point of baptism that God does his work and cleanses you of your sin and gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let me also say this, there will be people that will accuse us of teaching salvation by works. And they'll say, you're saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. So we get accused of teaching salvation by works. Well, what's their definition of a work? Most often, their definition of a work is something you do in order to be saved. Well, then they're guilty of what they, they say, that what they accuse us of. Is hearing essential? Who hears? The person does. Who believes? The person. Who repents? The person. Who confesses? The person. Who baptizes? Somebody else. Not the person. Baptism is the one thing you don't do. It is done to you. You submit to it. Baptism isn't a work. It's the work of God where God does his work of cleansing and giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it's not something you do. It's something you submit to. Usually baptism is one of the questions that most people want to ask about. And then you live a life of faithfulness. Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I'll give unto you the crown of life. So, you have built the relationship in cultivation. You have sowed the seed of the gospel. You told them that Christ died for their sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. You've shared the gospel. You've planted that seed. You have watered it. You've shared with them your story. And you've been patient, waiting for a harvest which comes from God. And eventually your friend says, okay, what do I need to do? You need to be able to tell them. And this, I hope you'll keep with you as a reference. And you'll be able to just learn this without ever having to make use of a paper, but if you want to set it out before them so they can see it, sometimes the visual will aid them as well. This is God's way of saving man, and we dare not change that. So, that is, I believe, going to be the conclusion to this series on evangelism. And I hope it's been practical and helpful for you. If there's anyone here today that has not, has not done what we've talked about today, why not do it today? We have a baptistry right here with warm water in it. You won't freeze. Uh, you can be immersed into Christ today. We have clothing you can wear and towels you can dry off with. We have everything that's necessary for you to obey the gospel today. But I don't want to just emphasize the baptism. I want you to believe in Jesus. We are not inviting you to the church. We're inviting you to Christ. He's the one who died to save you. Have you made him your Lord? Have you accepted him as your Savior? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in God? 
and that God sent him to save you. See, that's the crux of the gospel. And if you believe that, what's keeping you from repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Jesus, completing your obedience here in baptism, and then living a life of faithfulness? Why don't you make that decision today if you need to? You can meet me right down front as we stand and sing.